This is KCLR's Bottom Line with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants, the Southeast's largest independent accountancy practice. www.omf.ie Hello, good morning and welcome to The Bottom Line, the programme for and about business on KCLR. Thanks to Brian Redmond for a very entertaining last two hours since 7am this morning and congrats to Caroline Hulsbar on winning €800 Euros in Ireland's deceptively named Easiest Quiz. It's the second last business programme of the year on KCLR and there's a bit of a look back and a look forward feeling today on the show. We'll be talking to Tom Parlin, Director General of the Construction Industry Federation, about how, at the end of a tumultuous year, the construction industry is still standing. With Wolf Walkers by Kilkenny Studio Cartoon Saloon getting rave reviews and in Irish cinemas and on Apple TV as we speak, we'll hear about the technical challenges of getting the film finished at the height of the first wave of COVID earlier this year. And we'll be talking to the Head of Communications in Cork Airport about what has been a horrible year for aviation and with the vaccine on the horizon whether this airport in particular is feeling positive about a return to the skies in 2021 but first joining me on the line to discuss consumer confidence Ireland's two Covid era economies and Brexit is Austin Hughes Chief Economist with KBC Bank Good morning Austin Morning John How are you? Look there's talk of gunboats the tanks are metaphorically getting parked on various lawns um, I'm talking, of course, of Brexit. KBC, I think, is a, is a Belgian or, or heavily uh, linked to Belgium. How do you explain the Brexit mindset to Belgians? Uh, it's, it's very difficult. Um, it's very difficult to anyone talking to someone beyond the UK to explain what's happening. It's very difficult for an economist to explain what's happening because Brexit is one of these things that's going to make everyone worse off. And the logical sort of basis to economics says that people do not do things that make them worse off. But we're we're hearing <laughs> the cheering and the preparations for something that is going to make the UK economy a good deal uh, worse off. Uh, and just in the last couple of weeks, the UK's own equivalent, I, I think you'd call it maybe close to our Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, their Office for Budget Responsibility is saying um, that a no-deal Brexit is the worst of all possible outcomes in terms of the outlook for the UK economy. Uh, and, it, you know, it, it highlighted this just as we were getting through the end of the negotiations. The reality, of course, is that in a world gone mad in many ways, uh, we, we see signs of strange things right across the globe in terms of what people do and what people vote for. Um, Brexit is one where people have this cartoon view of sovereignty, of a freedom to do what they want, uh, and there is that sense that that has uh, given Brexit uh, a huge impetus. The other element, of course, in Brexit, and it's true of so many other parts of, of economic and other parts of life, um, the Brexit was often seen by the Brexiteers uh, as suggesting the other guys are responsible for all our problems. If the UK was unshackled from this bureaucratic EU, everything would be great. Mm. So those are the sort of ways in which we try and explain it to our colleagues in Brussels and across Central Europe. 
but by and large, they still look at us with glazed eyes and wonder why on earth are people doing this? Yeah, now I never had much of a sense of what was in trade agreements, but I have a bit of a sense that if if Boris Johnson, Michael Gove and co weren't actually putting um, the details and the minutiae of trade agreements in front of the British public and characterising them in terms of independence and sovereignty and so on, people wouldn't really notice. Is that a bit naive of me? Uh, they wouldn't notice when they, they are given these huge World Trade Organization texts uh, that show, you know, 6,000 items subject to different rates of tariffs. But when they head to the shops in early January and they find that the price of meat has increased, they find that the, there may not be a particular type of um, food category uh, on the shelf or uh, as some of the horror stories are suggesting when they're uh, saying that there will be problems in terms of accessing pharmaceuticals when you know the world that we live in now and and, you know I I imagine many of your listeners are are only forcefully seeing it with um, the deliveries with online deliveries you know companies around the world have this just in time situation so if you're making a car somewhere in the UK uh, on a Tuesday you only import the parts uh, from the EU or some more distant part of the world on a Monday night mm. um, when that supply chain starts to crack uh, which will happen in January then people will notice it so there is this extraordinary gap between the very dusty talk of trade deals and the details of rules of origin and uh, non-competing elements and ratchet clauses um, and the reality then of, oops, I can't make the car today, oops, uh, you know, that food isn't on the shelves, and oops, my business could be gone. So I, I think that's a very significant leap Uh, And this is the problem with a lot of elements around economic policy now. It's it's discussed in very dusty and dry terms. And to be honest, I think as well, economists like myself and lots of others haven't done a great job because this matters hugely to people. But we use a language that people don't understand. And we talk in terms of, you know, two or three percentage points off GDP. uh, And as someone famously told a Bank of England official, he said, that's off your GDP, that's not off my GDP, I don't know what GDP is. So there is that sense in which, you know, a lot of policymakers and economists have been a little bit patronising about something that really, really matters. Yeah, now, um, consumer sentiment, you've been looking at that. Uh, just briefly tell us, Austin, what are, what's the headline that you found when you've talked okay. to people about well, how well, they're feeling? In general, uh, you know, we do an overall consumer sentiment index, and that suggests that Irish consumers understandably have become very cautious, very nervous since uh, the pandemic hit. And in that regard, they, they have been rightly concerned about the outlook for jobs and their household finances. Um, But the November reading shows a recovery. About a year ago, consumer sentiment was around 70, uh, 75, that sort of area. It fell to 42 in um, April, uh, and we're seeing it around 65 in November. So 
the hope that the vaccine is coming, the hope that the lockdowns are ending has meant there's been some pickup in sentiment. So that's our main index in terms of sentiment. In November, we also did a special survey where we asked consumers what sort of impact has the pandemic had on their thinking about the property market? Because we've heard a lot around what COVID means for the housing market and for house sales. Uh, and to be honest, um, people tend to think again um, that what the way they feel about the world is true of everything else. And instead, what I think the really interesting part of the sentiment survey on housing is it suggests there are two economies. There are two worlds since the pandemic. There is a world of those who are, have been able to work from home, whose salaries are still coming in, whose jobs aren't threatened by COVID. And for those people, working from home probably means they pay more attention to uh, having a nice room in which they can work, you know, not having to share the kitchen table with their partner or maybe the kids doing the homework when they're trying to, to talk to their colleagues and work. And for those people, as I say, the importance of a house has improved. They probably would look to buy a bigger house. They would maybe look to buy a house with a nicer garden and things like that. So there is a group for whom the property market has now become a much more important issue in terms of their lives. And you see that in terms of fairly stable property prices because these people have been at least more engaged in the property market and we've seen a very sharp increase in mortgage applications and approvals in recent months after they fell dramatically when the pandemic hit. But that's only one side of the world. Um, there are other sectors that have been really severely hit by the pandemic, uh, and they feel um, not, it's not a case of them not wanting a home. It's just that they don't see themselves being able to afford a home. Oh. Their income has been hit. Their savings have been hit. And in many instances, actually, um, they feel that they actually need a home more. So we asked this question in the survey, were people willing to live further from their work? And with working from home so important now, we thought the answer would be that people were much more willing to work or to live further from their work. But in terms of distance, 16% of those surveys said they would work further away or live further away from work, whereas 21% they wanted to live closer to work. And that's really when you think about the people in the retail sector in hospitals, in care homes and that, who possibly are relying on public transport that has been badly hit through the pandemic. And so for them, they actually urgently need to live closer to work. And that sort of split, again, gives you a sense of the two types of economy we have, where, for one, access to property has become a little bit easier. They may have saved something a little bit more because they weren't able to shop as much as they could. And for others, their jobs are on the line. They are now probably more urgently seeking to live somewhere closer to work, but they feel they're going to be excluded from the property market. And that's one of the issues around the pandemic. It's also an issue around Brexit about the haves and have-nots. Indeed. There are those who will be severely directly affected uh, and their economic outlook has deteriorated significantly, while probably for the majority of consumers and businesses, it's business more as usual. Uh, and that's something that we, uh, we have certainly advocated hugely, that 
government policy has to be very supportive in order to prevent a really significant fracture of the economy and society. And you see that in terms of the housing market. As I say, what this survey is suggesting is that we need to build an awful lot more homes, and Tom Parlin can speak to you more about that, but it needs to be in two models. One, we need to build more purchase homes for those whose circumstances have been hugely impacted by the pandemic, and we have also to think about a much larger amount of social and supported access to housing by government in order to help those uh, who have been hit by the pandemic or who are going to be hit by Brexit or are just being hit by a general change in the world economy. The world economy has gotten tough. That's terrible to say that in terms of people thinking that 2021 hopefully will be a good deal better for most people. Hopefully. And Austin, unfortunately, we've got to leave it there. That's Austin Hughes, uh, economist from KBC. KCLR. KCLR. Proud to be local. You're very welcome back. You're listening to The Bottom Line, the programme for and about business uh, with you until 10 o'clock. I'm John Purcell. Now, Cartoon Saloon is a creative business based in Kilkenny that has been an absolutely fantastic ambassador for the city and county since the release of the first feature film, Secret of Kells, which came out in 2010. Since then, the studio has figured on all the most prestigious awards nomination lists from BAFTAs to Oscars, four of them. Despite its international success, which see it working with the biggest names in the business, Disney, Apple TV, the BBC, to name but a few, uh, the studio remains firmly rooted in Kilkenny and its latest film, Wolfwalkers has 17th century Kilkenny City as its setting. The film, which is in cinemas now and is just out on Apple TV in the next few days, was in its final stages of completion when Brexit hit. I spoke with Wolfwalkers assistant director and studio technical director Mark Mullery about how this was done. Hey, John. Yeah. Um, so, well, what happened with Wolfwalkers was it, it's our newest movie and we were at the pretty much at the tail end of production when the lockdown started started to come in around um, March. So we had the last few departments still working. We probably had about 30 people still actively working on it, but a lot of the earlier departments had uh, kind of tailed off. So um, what ended up having to happen with us was uh, we, we actually started sending people home to work remotely earlier than um, the government mandated that we do so. And uh, what that kind of required was just people kind of suddenly working in a decentralized way, trying to work on you know, fairly large scene files and things like that, uh, all working from home as much as possible. Those last departments are very information heavy, obviously, because um, that's where the whole final image is coming together. You have all of these exports from every other department being compiled. The, last department is called compositing so all those images are composited together and it was absolutely a huge undertaking to attempt to find a solution for people to be able to work from home in that way you know yeah and i suppose for many people working from home the height of their information technology requirement is the ability to send emails and maybe attach a word document or two many multitudes uh, larger demand you needed a an internet service provider and i suppose pretty solid network connection did, were you able to access that kind of technology for people to use in their homes or how did you do it yeah. 
Well, so so what actually happened was um, we have a service provider uh, called uh, Black Knight, and we use this network called Syro S I R O, and uh, we've had now we've had that for for years. What that was not nothing really to do with people themselves working at home. It just meant that in our own studio we had these very strong uh, download and upload speeds. Most people will kind of know that downloading to your computer is can be generally fairly quick but if you need to upload something large for someone that takes much longer that wasn't the case in cartoon saloon in our studio as it was so when we were um we were trying to find a solution for our compositing department in particular how to how to let them work what we actually ended up doing was we had their high powered machines with all of the serious information actually just sitting in our studio in the maltings they were accessing those remotely from their own laptops so they were more or less getting a video kind of sent down to them as though they were streaming watching youtube or watching twitch or something like that and so what that meant was the uploading that amount is really really difficult it's very hard uh, to get that much information moving especially when you have all these different machines 10 different machines all doing this but the strength of the internet uh th that we had in the maltings in cartoon saloon let us send a tremendous amount of that up and then all you really needed was uh, at home an internet connection that was good enough to stream youtube and that more or less let the last departments carry on remotely so that was a whole different ball game than just trying to access emails remotely which you know as an assistant director that's mostly what i'm doing i'm just reading emails and making decisions and replying so in some sense my job is kind of no different than many other kind of knowledge workers who would uh work uh who would be able to work remotely but for our sort of very intense um uh intensively working artists it was a much different thing you know answer me a question what's a compositing department you mentioned that they're obviously a crucial part of the of the movie and people would be familiar with seeing it on the credits but what does it actually do so um back when animation was entirely produced physically um the various different layers you would see if you watch an old if you watch an old disney movie or if you watch a looney tunes or anything like that the background is painted once it's just a, a physical painting and that's placed down uh in front of a camera and then the character animation is was painted onto transparent cells and that allowed them to be on top of the background but you to be still able to see the background behind it and then that's basically a composite image that's an image made up of two images um that has advanced a huge amount especially in feature animation to the point that you're now talking about not two layers not five layers you're often talking 30 40 100 layers and within that there are all sorts of different effects added exposure effects all different things that blend it down into feeling like one image ultimately what we want is actually especially in wolfwalkers was the sense that every frame every single image if you paused on it could look like it was crafted by a single hand but it's not it takes hundreds of people to make uh, an animated movie and the compositing department is where all that comes together yeah now um you mentioned traditional animation it must now in the world you operate 
in be hugely technical uh, and you're the technical studio technical director what does that involve well with us it's kind of the question of how do we use technology to help us keep up our sort of traditional methods in its own way so we still want to draw our characters frame by frame paint them frame by frame we want to paint our backgrounds we want to use traditional materials where possible on wolf walkers uh there was a lot of um, charcoals and watercolors used and various things like that for us the the kind of technical side is more about trying to make things much more uh iterative between the artists if possible so say back when um secret of kells was was being made that was um back in the 2000s the that was uh, actually drawn on paper and that and it was a lot of it was colored in um, a studio in brazil that meant that uh, all those reams and reams of paper had to be fedexed over to be scanned and then to be uh, painted and then sent back that was just a tremendous kind of workload that the artists themselves never really thought of so my role as the technical director of the studio is to try to make it that all the artists think about is drawing or painting or whatever it is but have the technology mean that instead of spending hours scanning your own work and then you know uploading it and having people look at it that you finish drawing what you're drawing you hit review and it goes straight onto the supervisor's desk they write notes and it's right back at you that we generally think of as working within studio hubs but in the pandemic, it actually uh, decentralized completely so that people were reviewing things on their kitchen tables and sending notes to other people working at their kitchen tables. So a little bit different, but, you know, the technology was there for it. Yeah. And so Wolfwalkers, which is now available in Irish cinemas, gladly uh, reopened, has got hugely fantastic and positive reviews. But uh, a local Internet service provider and a good, strong network at the back of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we haven't had uh, that level of um, that level of upload and download speed, it would have been a whole different question. And certainly the, the CSIRO network was something that you know, hugely facilitated that. Mark Mullery there, Assistant Director of Wolf Walkers, out now in cinemas and also available on Apple TV. And he talked about uh, the network. And good to see during the week that people are starting to take to Aircode with a 42% increase in the amount of searches for Aircode. And indeed, if you want to look up, if you're in an area that you need better broadband in, you can put in your Aircode into syro.ie and they'll see if uh, you've got good coverage. And that service also available from... Vodafone, Imagineer and all good broadband providers. We're going to take a break and back talking about construction. The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants, the Southeast's largest independent accountancy practice. www.onf.ie KCLR. Proud to be local. Proud to be local indeed. Uh, KCLR, John Purcell with you until 10 o'clock on the bottom line, the programme for and about business. Now, the construction industry in Ireland is one of the country's biggest employers with builders in every county, town and indeed village around the country. And like every sector, it's an industry that has been challenged by COVID. 
Well, the cover of the most recent edition of Construction, the Construction Industry Federation magazine, has a rather striking photograph of a a crane silhouetted against a dramatic skyline with the words 2020 Construction still standing. Joining me on the line is Tom Perlin, Director General of the Construction Industry Federation. Tom, you're still standing. Tell us the story of Construction in 2020. Thanks be to God, John, yeah. I know, it's been a challenging year, certainly, as it has obviously been for everyone. Um, Construction got closed down entirely when we had the major lockdown back in March. And um, I suppose we're lucky. I I represent uh, uh, the industry on a small group called LEAF. It's the Labour Economic um, Employment Forum. And it's just IBEC, Danny Mackay, Patricia King from ICTU, um, the um, Ian Talbot uh, from the Chambers and myself, uh, would sit down on a fairly regular basis with the Taoiseach Minister for Finance and Minister for Jobs and their Secretary General. So we obviously had those meetings immediately because the whole industry was closed down. Uh, construction ourselves decided that we were going to put together a top world-class um, standard operating procedure that would allow the industry to carry on you know, safely, uh, taking on board all the guidelines that had been issued by our government here and internationally. And we put together a very detailed portfolio over, I suppose, about a month. And um, we're lucky that we have a small enough staff in CIF, but our committees incorporate the top experts from all of our members. So all of our big firms had really world-class health and safety experts. And you got back to work pretty safely. Worked, yeah. So we we came up with the protocol, and then at that stage, the government were coming up with their own protocol called Getting Back to Work uh, Safely Protocol, and we fed into that. So it was accepted by government. We were the first industry uh, that were up and running. Uh, immediately we opened, and uh, thankfully we've stayed open and stayed open safely, and really construction has been operating pretty normally uh, you know, since then, uh, everybody going to work, about 150,000 people going to work every day, earning money every day, uh, creating infrastructure, building houses and paying their taxes as well. Yeah, now, um, the recovery is the name of the game as we hopefully start to emerge from COVID. The budget was very important and and a lot of money for capital investment in infrastructure. You're committed, uh, I've re- read your piece in the Construction Magazine about the importance of regional economies. Uh, how how do you see and are you optimistic about the future? Well, just lately, we've had, we have a regional infrastructure committee and have been on Zoom calls uh, with uh, local TDs. We started in the West, like Donegal, down along the West and so on, having all um, the local TDs on Zoom. So I had one yesterday morning at my own constituency, Lee Shoffley, uh, and we have an infrastructure committee. Uh, obviously, construction learn about sort of, or uh, construction industry learn about infrastructure projects maybe before there's any political announcements and so on. I know MSD just last week announced a new extension to a plant to have up in County Mead and I think 300 new jobs. Actually, it's been built by the construction people at the moment, so we know about that. So it's a good way of, of clearing in. But really, you know, the bulk of investment and the bulk of jobs have been in the greater Dublin area. The bulk of our members are all over the country and probably a lot of them travelling to Dublin for work. So it makes imminent sense to uh, to spread that infrastructure out around uh, the countryside and into the other five cities and into the Midlands, like uh, uh, Carlow, Kilkenny, or Lee Shoffley or whatever. So uh, the government, I think, have have, have seen that light now. Uh, it's basic uh, international best practice as well to do that. And I suppose the challenge will be to uh, to encourage some of the big FDI that when they're investing, that they will consider investing outside of the greater Dublin area. Uh, And, you know, there's a a strong element of that, but probably not strong enough. 
And do you find um, the government is open to that? Um, Regionalisation, very important, but it's been slow progress over the years. There's no question about that. And, you know, obviously we've had some, I suppose, bad uh, examples. The famous Apple data centre down in Galway uh, that was sort of uh, blocked by, by judicial review and by sort of failure of the system. And when a big player as big as Apple get knocked on the head and get knocked back, uh, it probably discourages some other players from attempting to do that as well. No, I think there's good commitment and uh, from government. And um, I suppose the biggest challenge we have, the government have committed $10.5 billion, uh, for national infrastructure for next year. Getting that spent, the rigmarole that surrounds um, tendering and qualification and all of that, uh, you know, we're behind the curve there. We need to introduce... Uh, global best practice. We're having a lot of uh, uh, a dialogue at the moment with the Department of Public Expenditure, with the Office of Government Procurement. We need to move that along. Those projects take way longer uh, than they ever should. Than they ever should. Yeah, they no. take forever. The planning and the and the, the and the, the tendering. You mentioned uh, the huge employment that the sector uh, generates, a huge uh, share of the entire Irish workforce. Um, but having a pipeline of people coming through is very important. Uh, you've launched a very interesting initiative. I saw it again um, in your magazine, Construction, about the design a home for everyone. And you're looking for schools to get involved in that. Tell us about that initiative. Yeah, well, I suppose we were trying to, like, uh, a lot of people end up in construction um, and you know, prior to the pandemic, uh, construction was was challenged in terms of competing with the hospitality sector, competing with the tech sector, competing with the health sector, trying to get people, you know, at school level to consider construction as a career. So we come up with this idea that we would encourage um, uh, senior cycle students to uh, uh, take part in a competition that would be based around designing a home that would solve some of the climate change problems. Uh, we obviously have a housing crisis. Uh, that would address uh, inclusivity, that would be eco-friendly, that would be affordable. All the challenges that are out there, and I have no doubt that young people uh, with their very inquiring minds and so on would see that. There's a big social issue out there. It's not just the, 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 uh, the pound, shillings and pence that's involved in investing. It's a major social issue having housing for everyone. So it's a very, very interesting competition. We've got a very good... We have, I think, about 100 schools signed up now. And most importantly... If a local school signs up, we want the local building contractor to engage with that school, to offer advice to the students and to the teachers there, you know, as to, you know, how to deal with some of the, um, uh, some of the challenges that are there. And I think it's going to show that construction isn't maybe the stereotypical old-fashioned industry where fellows are laying blocks out in the, the, the bad weather and so on. It's a, it's a very high-tech industry now. Uh, it's an extremely important industry, whether it be building the homes that are so badly needed or the factories for the, uh, or the, the facilities for the likes of the Facebooks and the Googles and the, uh, the big drug companies, the Pfizer's and, and so on that are here. So uh, it's about suppose, opening young people's minds uh, to the opportunities that are within construction. And I think if we just get them looking at it, I think we'll hook them. And, you know, construction down the line is a great career. Uh, people that, that, that have construction skills, be they... Um, you know, block layers or plasters or electricians or BD engineers or architects or whatever, generally they can travel the world because mm. those skills are, are, are transferable. Generally, they can earn uh, while they're learning because you can keep building up your, your um, portfolio skills of skills. And I think there's a great satisfaction 
that you know you're involved in your community you're building up the economy and building up society so we have a lot to offer it's just getting people to think about it and i think this up this uh, this school competition will be a help in in doing that okay tom we have to leave it there that's tom perlin who's director general of construction industry federation have a good christmas tom and best wishes to all your members in this area you too, John. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that's Tom Perlin, who's the Director General of the Construction Industry Federation. Joining me on the line uh, is a man who's been in an industry that's been very challenged this last uh, 12 months, Kevin Cullinan from Cork Airport. Uh, good morning, Kevin. Good morning, John. Yeah, now Cork Airport, um, a really progressive airport that had won loads of awards, uh, a constant stream of awards. It was going well. You were the fastest growing airport in Ireland and then COVID came along. It's been absolutely devastating and your Christmas figures are are pointing towards the challenge and the scale of the collapse in business. Yes, I mean, the whole aviation sector around the world has been decimated by this pandemic uh, with aircraft grounded and very few people travelling. Last Sunday, I think we saw uh, 1.5 billion people discommoded this year who couldn't travel, who were booked. So we've obviously been affected by that at Cork. We've seen our traffic down by 80% uh, since March, having come into the year, as you say, after four consecutive years of very strong growth and becoming Ireland's fastest growing airport last year on the, the back of 25% growth over those four years. But I think we're starting to see early signs of those proverbial green shoots for, for 2021. Yeah, and that's good to see because it's important that we look ahead with positivity. And, and of course, the vaccine has meant huge positivity. It certainly has been a game changer. It's instilled newfound confidence in our airline customers who are now looking to spring 2021 after the resumption of some of their services, uh, given the news from Pfizer, indeed, the, the swathe of other manufacturers that have announced uh, very positive results from their vaccine trials. Yeah, uh, Kevin, we're going to keep you on the line. We have to take a break, uh, but uh, we'll be back to discuss uh, the airline industry, the future for Cork Airport, and how we can look ahead with some optimism to uh, 2021. Don't go away. KCLR, proud to be local. You're listening to The Bottom Line, the programme for and about business on KCLR. John Purcell with you until 10 o'clock. I'm joined on the line by Kevin Cullinan, who's Head of Communications, Cork Airport. Kevin, we were talking about the past year and how difficult it is going to be, but Christmas is in the air, and despite numbers uh, being down, the airport will be festive and you will have people going going through over the next couple of weeks. Yes, and we'll see a pick-up now from next week at the moment, coming into this this December period, we've had just two routes operating uh, with two of our airline customers. When you think back December of last year, we would have had 32 routes yeah. being operated by nine airlines. But we will see a, a pick up to five routes next week. Uh, we'll see an initial arrival of about 1,600 passengers, which will double then the following week. Uh, our busiest day is anticipated to be Wednesday, the 23rd of December. And then obviously after the Christmas period, people... Uh, maybe heading back or, or visiting family and friends in the UK and continental Europe. So in total, we'll see about 13,000 people in and out of the airport this Christmas, but that's down 89% on last year when we would have seen close to 120,000 wow. passengers 
flying through. So it, it, it's it, it's a bit of a recovery, but it's a very slow very trigger slow to recovery. what we're, we're normally used to. We heard the message from the government during the commercial break there saying that it's important that people, you know, uh, moderate their behaviour and, and take care. And travelling, um, for those people travelling, travel has changed quite a bit and there's quite a few things. Like, for example, people shouldn't wrap presents if they're coming through the airport. It, it, are the restrictions and, and the way people fly likely to change quite dramatically regardless of a return? Well, I suppose over the uh, several months now, we've been putting in various safety and well-being measures. So when people come to the airport, if they haven't been to the airport this year, uh, they'll see a lot of plexiglass screens in front of check-in desks and security desks and even in front of uh, similar to your local supermarket in front of all of the retail outlets and obviously very strict social distancing measures in place to protect people. So safety and well-being is always first and foremost in an aviation and an airport context. And then there's practical things that people have to do at Christmas time. So the best advice is always not to fully wrap presents um, in case the security officers need to, to inspect the package. Um, before you're you're let through to uh, your your boarding gate, and practical advice that not to carry things like Christmas crackers, which obviously have a a very small incendiary device in them, which is the banger. Um, and again, sometimes there could be sharp objects inside of those those crackers, which obviously appear on the X-ray machine for the security officers. So there's practical measures like that. Um, and to bear in mind that even though the airport's going to be, you know, 90% quieter than previous, there's still going to be a reasonable amount of people going through on your flight, uh, given that there's very few flights. So they're mm. going to be busy and they're going to be full. So best advice is still to arrive at your airport at least 90 minutes before your scheduled departure time. Yeah, now, uh, how are you feeling overall looking ahead? Um, I know you for a good few years. Kevin, we met first through Comedy Festival and you have many friends in this area through your former work with uh, Murphy. Uh, on the Catlaps Comedy Festival a positive person how are you feeling about next year? I think we're going to start to see um, early signs of a recovery from the spring onwards a lot depends on how quickly the, the various vaccines can be rolled out so the, the national vaccination programme if that can instill consumer confidence again and instill a, w- a wish and a desire for people to travel again then we'll start to see that reflected in our airline customers adding more routes to more destinations from airports like Cork for people in Carlo and Kilkenny. Yeah, now finally, um, despite all the uh, downs of the last year, you've won many uh, awards and so on. Yes, I mean, I, I suppose during the pandemic we were very keen um, to make sure we had the, the highest standards in terms of health and well-being and we were indeed the first airport in these islands to get the Airport Council international accreditation um, for our health and safety measures we've put in since the onset of COVID. So it's not an award you'd normally go out and seek, um, but we wanted to really reassure our passengers and our travelling guests through the airport that they would be travelling to not just Ireland's friendliest international airport, but also Ireland's safest. Well, well done, Kevin, to you and best wishes to you and everyone in Cork Airport just down the road, really, uh, from ourselves in Carlock Kilkenny. That's uh, Kevin Cullinan, Head of Communications in Cork Airport. Good morning to you, Kevin. And that's about all we've got time for this week on The Bottom Line. Remember, if you have any comments or ideas you'd like to get to us, you can email the bottom line at kclr96fm.com or you can listen back to the show or any of the shows we've done. Just search for The Bottom Line on the Apple Store, Google Play or Spotify. Thanks to all our guests this morning, Austin Hughes, Tom Perlin, Mark Mullery and Kevin Cullinan. Thanks to Deirdre Drummy, who produced. We'll be back for the last Bottom Line of the year next Saturday, just after. 
after nine. Have yourself a good weekend, a safe week, and we'll talk to you next Saturday. The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants. Now offering a complete life and pensions advisory service to business. www.omf.ie